0: remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we take a big portion of Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12 today. I will not read the entirety of it for the sake of time, as well as for my own sake not to name all of these names that are listed in here, but I hope to give you a little bit of the flavor of these, these two chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah everyone lived on his property in their towns, Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants, and Jerusalem lived certain sons of Judah and all the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaniah, son of Uzziah, verse 5, and Messiah, the son of Baruch, verse 6, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men, verse 7, and these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshullah, verse 8, and his brothers, men of valor, 928, Joel, the son of Zikri was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hashnuah. Was the second over the city, of the priests Jedidiah, verse eleven. Sarai who did the and his brothers who did the work of the house eight hundred and twenty-two, and Adadiah the son of Jehoram, whose, and his brothers the head of the house, two hundred and forty-two, verse fourteen and their brothers mighty men of valor hundred and twenty-eight verse 15, and of the Levites, Shemaiah, verse 19, and the gatekeepers, and the rest of the priests, and the Levites were in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. Verse 22, the overseers of the Levites in Jerusalem, for there was, verse 23, a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed position for the singers, as every day required. Verse 25, and for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in the, and then gives the surrounding areas that they live. Chapter 12, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Verse eight, and the Levites. Verse 12, and the days of Joachim were priests, heads of their father's houses. Verse 22, In the days of Elishab, and gives the name of the Levites and the priests there. And then verse 26. These were in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Josadik, and the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of
1: Ezra, the priest and scribe. Please be seated. Sixteen years ago this month,
0: Hurricane Katrina made a, it's, fall on the Gulf Coast and destroyed much in its path. A million people were displaced and over a million homes region-wide were damaged as a result of this hurricane and and became the most destructive and the most expensive hurricane of all time. And this was no more intensely felt than in the city of New Orleans, where 80 percent of the city was underwater as a result of the levees that gave way, and complete neighborhoods were devastated and in need of repair. No doubt you remember the pictures. And the result of this was that the population of New Orleans, which was about 460,000 before the hurricane, was cut in half. Over half of the city never returned, rather settling in other parts of the country. And even today, The population of New Orleans, a decade and a half later, is still only about 75% of what it was before the hurricane. In other words, there was a seismic change and shift in a city due to disaster. Well, as we think of what was going on in Jerusalem, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the time before, it's not altogether different. Because in 586, there was a disaster as well. Not a natural disaster like a hurricane, but the utter destruction of a city by the hands of another nation. There was a Babylonian invasion that led to the utter collapse of the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And it was complete devastation. People were dispersed and buildings were destroyed and ruined. And yet what we have been seeing in this book over the last several weeks is that God does not forget. God had not forgotten his city. He had not forgotten Jerusalem, which is called in this passage the holy city. Because God had made special promises to it, to bless it. But yet in the aftermaths of this destruction, that might be hard to believe. Even in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. You see a city that is still rebuilding but has a long way to go. But what we see is that God never forgets to do his work, the work of his redemptive purpose. And he accomplishes that both through his people and in his people. That is exactly what we've been seeing in this book. After a hundred years since that destruction, the consequences were very severe, but Ezra and Nehemiah and the list of people, the lists that we have here in chapter 11 and 12, were committed to this urban and national renewal, not just for renewal's sake, but for redemption's sake. And they did so through a covenant community, And God still continues to work through a covenant community, not altogether unlike this one. And so I want to see four truths this morning of covenant community that we learn from this passage. First, that covenant community people are needed. As we have read through chapter 11 and 12, at least in part, it's a daunting task, no doubt. Pastor Derek Thomas says, most would rather have Romans 8 read at their deathbed, then Nehemiah 11 and 12, and I get that. It's not the most exciting portion of Scripture, but that does not mean that it is not for us, and it does not mean that there aren't lessons here for us to learn, because it is not any less inspired. It is the inspired Word of God, and therefore, this is for us. The problem is that we oftentimes just read these names and have no connection to them. It's kind of like what Pastor Danny mentioned a couple weeks ago with that Holocaust museum. Initially, when people came and visited, they were overwhelmed by the tragedy and the overwhelming loss of life. But there was no personal connection that was made. And so they began to give everyone a name. As they came into that museum and as they made their way through that museum, they would learn more about that specific person, about their life and what they went through and ultimately their hands, their death at the hands of the Nazis. And that made a tremendous impact because it personalized the atrocity to show that these were not just names. These were real people. Real living individuals, humans, not unlike you or I that experienced this horrific tragedy, people literally had to stare into the eyes of such a tragedy to to really understand it, to really get it and I think that is what is needed here. If this just becomes a, a list of names, it has very little impact to us, but if we Think what it must have been like for these individuals, as we look at verse four and see Athaliah, the, the son of Uzziah, who was probably from the line of the kings of Judah, what it must have been like for for him to return and experience this, and what could have been if his fathers and forefathers had not sinned, we think of verse six, Messiah, the son of Baruch or. One of my personal favorites, verse nine, Joel, the son of Zikri. There's not much we can know about these individuals, but it doesn't diminish their significance. The fact remains that these were real people with real stories. And more importantly, their story is a part of our story. They are not just random names in a far off place that lived a long time ago. These are the names of the People of God, the ones in whom God covenanted with and they with God. These are redeemed brothers and sisters, fellow inhabitants of the new Jerusalem that is yet to come. And without whom, none of us would be here. What do I mean by that? Well, God's covenant is worked out through people. That is the promise of Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? We read that it's through the seed of the woman, this covenant seed, a redemption would come. And usually as New Testament believers, we look at that passage and we say, yes, that means that Christ is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that is absolutely true. That is the fulfillment. But there is a long line between Eve and Christ, and it is made up of this covenant people, all of which were needed. I think that's the point when we turn to the New Testament and we open the book of Matthew, and the very first words we read is a genealogy, and we say, What a disappointing way to start. Why would we start with a genealogy? Well, because I think Matthew is trying to say, No, there's a connection that we need to make, that there is a God that has made covenant with a people, and through that covenant, he is working out redemption. And that is how we should see this, that God establishes his truth in community and that the covenant promise needs that covenant community to survive. And so this long list of names, all of those that went before and all of those that would go after are important because it demonstrates that God was bringing about redemption. And so each and every one is needed even though we may not know much about them. That these people were literally given themselves to the sweat equity of building this city. To build the walls and to build the gates. And it was those very walls and those very gates that 500 years later, Jesus Christ would walk through. So do you see the connection. And do you see the connection to us as well? That redemption will only reach men and women boys and girls today through the covenant community of believers, the church, namely
1: you and me, that the Holy Spirit is
0: using people like us. Is salvation supernatural? Absolutely. Does God need us to accomplish his will? Not one bit. But yet God has chosen quite Mysteriously, to use you and me, to use ordinary events, to use ordinary people to make his salvation known. This is what Paul says that the treasure is in jars of clay, common, ordinary jars that are is what you and I are. And so, as we gather together, this redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ is being propagated. Through this covenant, through this covenant community, through us,
1: through this city, the fact that the Lord has
0: us here at thirty-one thirty Atlanta Road is not insignificant. We're not here by mistake. We're here to do a mission. We're here to make God known, to know Him and make Him known. To to know and to grow and to show forth the love of Christ. This can happen in and through community alone. Not unlike this list that we read here and not unlike the one that is gathered right before us. And so as you gather this morning, as you look around, let me ask, do you you know each other? Are you thankful for one another? You wanna see salvation at work? Here it is. Here's God at work. Just look around us. And therefore, do not be a a nameless face or even worse, a a number. God, help us if if that's how we think of congregational members as merely just numbers. And therefore, we are not to be disenfranchised parts that that float in and float out. These people could be named Their names could be written down upon a list. And the same is needed today
1: for the work. And so we need to be known and make yourself known to those around you.
0: Covenant community people are needed. In other words, you're needed. You're needed to be a part of this covenant community for redemption to go forth, not only in you but to the rest of the world. That's the first truth. The second truth is this, covenant community families are key. God not only works through covenant community, but he works in and through families. As you read through this, you shouldn't miss that this is a list of family names. Oftentimes, several generations are listed, that this was the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so. It goes back sometimes six or seven generations. Why is that important? Well, it demonstrates that families are useful in the plan of God. That God hasn't just made families as just a kind of a a nice, convenient way of of organizing His his creatures. That this isn't just some sociological construct. No, that God has used families and is using families to bring His covenant faith. To fruition, the very fact that we see these people listed here, the very fact that these people were willing to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to rebuild the walls, was because that faith was nurtured in families. You need to understand that most of these people that returned never had been to Jerusalem, had never been to Israel. They were, most of them were born in exile, How was it that they learned about the significance of this land? How was it that they learned about this city and about the covenant? They learned it from their parents and from their grandparents teaching them. Teaching them about Father Abraham and King David and Solomon and the God who made covenant with them. That faith was passed down one to another. Parents rearing their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That the covenant promise was passed on from one generation to the next. And that's exactly how God intended it to be. We read in Genesis chapter 17, when God made covenant with Abraham, he didn't just make it with him. He says that I make this covenant between me and you and your offspring for an everlasting covenant. Why? Because I'm going to be your God and the God of your children. And he gave a sign in the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision. In the New Testament, we would see that as the sign of baptism, as we even heard this morning in Sunday school. And that's exactly what the Apostle Peter says in the day of Pentecost. This promise is for you and for your children, as well as for those that are far off. And so we must see, even in this list, this genealogy, is that God has used the main administration of his covenant through families, and continues to do so. Some of us come from a, a long line of believers. Others of us have been graciously saved from unbelieving families. In our home, we have both. In my family, i have blessed to have parents and grandparents and even great-grandparents who are all believers. My wife's family, not as much of a Christian background. But the beauty is this, that if you have it one way or the other, is that now, by God's grace and Lord willing, you get to set the direction, hopefully for generations to come, either by keeping it going from the faith that was passed on to you or radically altering the course of your family tree. Because either way, it is all by grace. But our prayer should be that we would have generational change, generational belief that our children and that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and those far beyond, even when we are dead and gone, would be believers, children of the Almighty God. How awesome is that? And how awesome would that
1: be? Is that how we think?
0: Is that kind of the way that we're living our life? Not only our children would believe, but our grandchildren would believe and our great-grandchildren our great-great-grandchildren. I tell you, that doesn't happen without intentionality. Intentionally discipling. Intentionally raising and nurturing and teaching and praying and asking that the Holy Spirit would not only grasp our mind, but the the minds of our children and the hearts of our children. And that also means joining with others to to do the same. As I mentioned this morning, what a blessing it was to to see children going off to to Sunday school and other people in this church saying, hey, parents, I want to join in with you to teach your children about Jesus. Praise God. As a parent, how would you not say, yes, please, take them? Help me in this. I need all the help I can get. And that's exactly what we do every time we we see baptism. we, We are saying that we as the family of God would assist one another. This is because we are all part of one family ultimately. And that's what you must hear. Even if you're you're single, or even if you're widowed, and you think, "Well, I I, I don't have a family." No, in Christ you're never left without a family. And you can't say, no, "I don't have children." No, you have about a
1: hundred of them here. These are our children.
0: What a blessing it is to join in, to teach, and to to hold babies in in nursery. Why? Because we want to be made making disciples for years to come. It starts at, at home, but it also is encouraged and supplemented by being a part of this bigger family, the church. So, so we need to make it a priority. Moms and dads, you need to make it a priority. It's hard to do so if you're, you're not here. That's what it means to be a part of a, a covenant community. Covenant community families are, are key our discipleship and and having them know Christ. Well, third, our covenant community worship is a priority. As you look through this list, you, you see a lot of names and you see a lot of titles. But what we see is that the main focus of the city of Jerusalem was worship. They didn't have a lot even at the very beginning it says that they were essentially doing a lottery system to see who would live in the city because they needed more people to to help out and to inhabit this kind of ghost town that was Jerusalem but nevertheless they were saying that the main
1: focus of this city would be worship the main
0: focus was the the temple and you see lists of priests and Levites and gatekeepers and temple servants and, and singers. And what we need to understand is that, yes, Israel was a, a nation, but even more so, they were the church in the Old Testament. And therefore, as we look through that list, as we look through this list, we must say that the worship of God needs to be the priority above all else. And again, is this our priority? Is this what we are reminded of? Is this what we identify ourselves by? Yes, we are, we are fathers and husbands and mothers and wives and workers and students and nanas and papas and all the other names and titles that we may give ourselves, but let me tell you that there is no greater Title no greater identifier that you can identify with than being a worshiper of Almighty God. Saying,
1: I'm a child of the King. And as a result, I worship. We need to keep that central. We need to make that a priority. I know for
0: many of us, as school starts, schedules begin, And we come off this summer break and we we need to implement new schedules and we need to implement schedules for our families, but we need to implement schedules for ourselves as well. Let me ask you, how do you start every day?
1: Do you rise a little bit early before the kids get up?
0: So you can spend some moments in reading and prayer. Why? Because First and foremost, before you do anything else, before you, you do the duties of that day, you're called to, to worship. You're called to bow before your creator and maker and redeemer and be reminded that everything I do this day is in service to you, O oh Lord, so please help me in it. And do you make this the priority of your work, your week, the first day of the week? Saying to you, your kids and to your wife and to your spouse, today, today is the day that we get to worship the Lord with the people of God. And I know if it's anything like my home, sometimes with our kids, there's, there's a few moans and, and groans. Sometimes I ask my
1: kids, is it because of the preacher, the pastor, you don't like them? They don't have a choice. This is a lesson, again, that
0: is caught more than it is taught, and it's caught through your priorities. You're prioritizing this in your own life, in the life of your family. This needs to, to be the big stone in your life. You've seen that analogy, haven't you? Where you have stones and you have sand and you have a jar, and you've got to put the big stone in the jar first before you put in the sand. Because otherwise, if you put the sand in first, those big stones won't fit. And the point is this, that you have to put priorities first so that everything else will fit around it. But so often, people fill their lives with the, the small, meaningless sand and dust and dirt of life. And then they go, oh, well, look at that. This bigger priority, this priority of worship and Priority of prayer no longer fits. I guess I just, I don't have any time for it. No, we we put in the, the big rock first, the big stone first, and then we fill everything else around it. And what is that rock? Well, Jesus is that rock. He's our foundation and our strength. He is the one that gives meaning to all the rest. The priority of worship as we look over this list. Fourthly, we see that covenant community Service is needed. From this list, you see that there's multiple people and they're called to multiple different tasks and areas of service. There's an assortment of gifts and skills and talents, but what we must not miss is that each were needed. Each were needed. And that is the point then, it's the point now. That The, the worship and work of God does not take place If people do not give themselves in service, ultimately in service to God. Because that is what we're called to, isn't it? We're called to serve. We're called to be servants. We're called to use our our gifts and our talents for the Lord and for his church. And so let me ask you, even as you begin that new schedule, as you launch into your fall life, how are the ways that you're going to prioritize not only worship but service? The ways that you can use the talents and gifts that God has given you. Because I tell you, there is a place for each and every one of you. It doesn't need to be what your spouse does. It doesn't need to be what the person in front of you is doing or the person behind you has done. What is it that you are doing? That God has called you to participate in. Paul says in
1: 1 Corinthians 12, there's
0: A variety of gifts, but there's one Spirit. There's a variety of Spirit services, but there's the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for your common good. Notice what he says there. To each
1: is given the Spirit for what? Your good? Your comfort? No, for the common good.
0: Of the body of Christ. It's the good of others. And the amazing thing is, when we serve, we're the ones that are blessed. Even as we are able to bless others, that naturally leads into what I mentioned earlier that today is the beginning of officer nomination. As we open up nominees for the office of elder and deacon, Nehemiah has so many great lessons to teach us on this. The lessons of leadership are so very evident as we have seen not only Nehemiah and his leadership of these people, but we see the leaders and the elders like Ezra and Nehemiah and all of the elders standing in front of the people of God and and making the Word of God, the the reading and preaching and the worship of God, the the priority. We see them leading from the front. We saw last week that these leaders were the first to sign the covenants. The people, as a result, responded the same. This week, beginning of chapter 11, we see that the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem which means that they gave up probably land outside of the city, the land to, to be able to, to farm and to provide for themselves. Living in Jerusalem, no doubt, came at a, a cost to them as leaders. But what we see in and through all of this is it's leaders that led by example, not those that said, do as I say, not as I do. No, they were saying, do as I do. And the same should be true of us. We shouldn't just nominate those that are are willing or even those that are just breathing. We're not looking for placeholders. We're not looking for seat fillers. It'd be better to have less leaders than wrong ones. What we need is, and what the church needs, is models and examples in life and in doctrine. Those who need not campaign. Why? Because they're. Life does all the campaigning that is needed, not in a showy way, not in a way that says look at me, but in a humble and non-assuming way, those that would serve the Lord in humility.
1: As we look through this list,
0: do you notice who's not on this list until the very end? You have to go all the way to the the very end in chapter 12 and verse 26 before we read the names of Nehemiah and Ezra. And notice their names are not even given in direct reference. It's more like these people served in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest and scribe. It's almost as if Ezra and Nehemiah thought of themselves as, as afterthoughts. That's a true leader. Those that put others in front of themselves. That is the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became the least of these, who came not to be served, but to serve others. And that is what we're looking for mere servants, unworthy servants, the ones that have the attitude of leadership. It says that others are are much more important than me. But yet, how should others? See such leaders. Well, they should see them as what men are described as in chapter 11. We read of it in verse 6. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468, and they were valiant men. In verse 14, and their brothers, mighty men of valor. Those are the men that we're looking for those that don't make much of themselves, but others make much of them because they look at their lives and see honor and dignity and respect. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that these are men that are above reproach, lives that can be followed. Who among you demonstrates those characteristics and those qualities? Those and those alone should be nominated. And so this is an important time in the life of the church. The work will either be enhanced or hindered by its leadership. Let me end with this. Let's not miss the whole point of this passage. The greatest blessing, the greatest benefits in the covenant community is that we get to experience the presence of God. That's what was important in Jerusalem. That's what's important today. That's what is and will be important for all of eternity, that there is a day that we will experience the the new Jerusalem and the presence of God like never before, that that city will no longer need a sun. Why? Because it says the lamb will be all the glory and will be the light that always shines. What a glory and joy that will be. That is what it means to be a part of the covenant community
1: enjoy the presence of God now and even much more fully then. But as
0: we approach the table, would we approach and would we partake in the special presence that is given through the bread and the wine, through the broken body
1: and blood that is given to this body? to this wonderful covenant community. Amen.